Good evening and welcome, friends, to another edition of Zippy the Wonder Snail. We are so glad to be with you. I'm Tim, and I'm here with my co-commissar, Jason. Hey, Jason. Hey, how you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, I just I enjoy that opening music so much. It brings me joy just to hear it when it starts and know that we're off on another episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. Me too. It's just so great to be zipping along, two Christian guys, uh, through news and culture that matter. I love it. The first topic, we got a really big topic tonight to talk about. There's a Supreme Court decision uh, that was handed down. Uh, Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. uh, And a very important case to do with religious liberty that involves um, Catholic social services. Part of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia uh, was sued because they... Uh, in accordance with their beliefs, they refused to place uh, foster children with same-sex couples. And what was interesting about this case is that it was 9-0, to Tim. That, I almost don't believe it. I don't believe it either. I, I recall saying somewhere in writing that I thought the liberal justices were, quote-unquote, liberal justices were more open to the righteous conscience than it would appear out in public. I've said that many times to people, but I said to you earlier today that I thought I might've been being too sanguine and optimistic about that, but nine to zero um, can't get, can't get any better than that. So uh, very shocking and very good. Yeah. I I was so happy to see this decision. I I think, I, I hope people, even if they, disagree with the Catholic Church's stance, they would be happy. As a Christian, I'm in agreement with the Catholic Church on this. I I support their position. But I think the bigger thing, if we care about the idea of freedom of conscience, as you you mentioned with the liberal justices, it, it really comes down to, are we free to practice what our conscience would demand that we do, especially from the standpoint of people of faith? Are we allowed to actually do what we believe, what we confess? And I am so glad to see a step in in a direction that would affirm the answer being yes, yes, we are. And to see it with nine to zero, I I do think that our society and its hyper-partisanship wants to make the justices pure partisan pawns and, and ignore the fact that they do take seriously the idea of weighing the legitimate merits of cases. Nonetheless, I, I'm just so delighted to see a 9-0 to ruling that says, yeah, there is actually room for people of faith to have a conscientious objection to something and hold to it. Right, and there's a couple interesting things going on here, because if we, if we explore uh, the beginning of at least our modern-day religious liberty jurisprudence, it was the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1990. It was a law passed by Congress uh, because a group of American Indians, a guy got fired for using peyote in a religious ceremony because it's it's a psychoactive drug, that sort of thing. And what was interesting about that law is it had broad bipartisan support. It was supported by liberals. So when we were arguing about the, Re- the Religious Freedom Restoration Act 
1990 and it was being applied to gay marriage and things like that, gay rights type of issues, people forget the genesis of that. And it was a lot of liberal Democrats, including uh, the late Senator Paul Wellstone of Minnesota, uh, supported that bill. So it's so interesting how people's ideological allegiances can change based on the needs of the moment. But, but again, this is another one of those times where if we believe in something called liberal democracy, it has to be, it has to be even handed. You know, we know, we know that we do not all define the good in the same way. We do not all define the pursuit of happiness in the same way. And our Supreme Court is basically saying, uh, you know, Christian people and other religious people of faith uh, and of firm conviction have a right to engage in that pluralism, too. They're a part of the pluralism that is America. So and and again, another thing you notice with this is that a nine to zero decision says the court doesn't want to deal with this again. It's a very firm, it's a way of laying down a precedent. And the justices have long understood that a unanimous decision should be sought wherever possible. And they've got it here. So, again, your, your thoughts on, uh, more thoughts on that? I, I think it shows, because obviously there's a diversity of opinion on the court as far as LGBT rights and, and everything that flows out of that. I, I think what it shows and what I appreciate about the justices, and it's in contrast to the way we as a society often seem to approach things, is that they seem to be seeing we're going to have freedom for anyone. We're going to have to make sure that we're providing freedom for a wide range of people. You mentioned that with the the pluralism and pluralism isn't just quote unquote, the other pluralism includes people of faith, say in the Catholic church and Protestant churches that have for long been the majority, although in our cultural sense, aren't necessarily any longer that they too have to be a part of that. And, if you restrict the freedom for one group, you're ultimately going to restrict it for everyone. And I, I feel like maybe that's something as we as individuals should keep in mind, too, that it, it can be really easy to be worried about these things when they impinge on things we care about. But if it feels like it's somebody else and, and their freedom of conscience, it doesn't bother us as much. And I'm thankful the justices didn't take that short-sighted view, that they, both the ones that would agree on a, this is a, a matter that affects what I believe, and also those who would disagree with Catholic services can both look at this and say, here are people who have a sincere a sincere belief, and you can't just restrict that if you're going to hold to the Constitution, the idea that there should be free exercise of religion. Because even if you apply it, and this was an interesting part in this case, where the, the lower courts argued that because it was a matter that was applied to everyone equally, both secular and religious organizations, everyone had to include an invitation to same-sex couples to be foster homes for, for the kids going through programs. 
that therefore they weren't discriminating against this religious group that believes that traditional marriage is a actual matter of conscience and a, a matter of doctrine. But the problem is, if you come up with a, an excuse like that and say, well, as long as everybody has to toe the line with this very acceptable to our present secular culture's viewpoint, that is not a, relig- a matter of religious discrimination. It, it really functionally is. And I'm glad the Supreme Court saw through that because, of course, secular organizations that aren't concerned with with what the Bible says on this are, are going to say, well, of course we should allow anyone that wants to be a foster home that is going to provide a safe home should be able to do it. And so it it's sort of a, a backdoor way to do religious discrimination. And I think the Supreme Court recognized that by overturning two lower courts and saying, this is a unique burden on those who have, as a matter of conscience, a belief that this is wrong and displeasing to God. And to say, either get out of the business, quit helping people, quit helping kids, or toe the line and do what you believe is sin is a terrible thing to tell someone of faith. Uh, And yes, like you're saying, and maybe we can put a sharper point on it, there's a functional neutrality that is actual hostility. And I think think that's what you're getting at. And the circuit court ruled the opposite, and then the Court of Appeals also ruled the opposite. And and I want the listeners to know, as a political scientist, if you get the circuit court and the appeals court to get smacked down by the Supreme Court, which is what they did, they don't like that. So the other thing that's going to happen is they might not be too friendly on either one of those two courts to the position of Catholic Social Services, part of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, but they're not going to want to get smacked again. Uh, and they know that the Supreme Court is going gonna, is gonna to be watching close. So it's very interesting. And I think I said to you before we went on the air, I think there's going to be another clarifying case. Because as you noted before we went on, there's two parts of the case. Uh, and one involves a precedent that was established earlier. Uh, and some conservative members wanted to re-examine that precedent, and the other, the liberals did not. So I think there'll be a clarifying case. But we're going to come back to this uh, in the next episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. Uh, we will come back and talk more about this next time. But right now we want to talk about something else, and that is our first sponsor tonight. Uh, our sponsors can function in our country because of religious freedom, so... I'm thankful for that. And Faith Tree has been here in the United States and serving around the world for 20 years this month. In fact, you may be listening to this on Faith Tree's 20th anniversary. What what an amazing celebration that is. I, I can't believe that we're at that point. I still remember first putting up Faith Tree 20 years ago. And it's still serving the internet community with a homepage where you can go and you can put all the things that you want to keep track of, news, weather, sports, stocks, and of course, Bible devotionals all in one place without ads, without being spied upon by all kinds of privacy invasive trackers and so on. You should go to faithtree.com and sign up for a free account and you can have all that there. And importantly, I think part of the the dialogue and how we, we, we can be more like what the justices are doing, where we recognize implications even beyond what personally bothers us is to, to read a variety of viewpoints 
And on Faith Tree, you can subscribe to news sources that are both conservative and liberal, and those that don't fit cleanly into either of those boxes, and, and really be informed. So check out faithtree.com. Any time of day or night, you can go on the website and find all that that you were talking about. It really is wonderful. For our next topic, Jason's going to introduce to us a famous telling of a spy story. And yes, the author, John Le Carre, that's his pen name. His real name is David Cornwell, and he served as a spy for Britain uh, up until the middle 60s, around in there, when he was outed by the infamous Soviet double agent, Kim Philby. Uh, and he began writing in the, in the 60s, but his most famous novel, or one of the most famous, is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And it's part of the Carla Trilogy, as it were. I can't tell you why it's called the Carla Trilogy right now, Tim, because I know you've only watched one episode of the BBC miniseries. Um, but Tinker Tailor's part of a trilogy involving the main character, George Smiley. And what's interesting about Le Carre is that he conceived Smiley as a counterpoint to Ian Fleming's James Bond. So when you're watching George Smiley, when you're watching the other spies in Tinker Tailor and in the follow-up story, Smiley's People, you're looking at this is what Le Carre thinks spying is actually like and not like Ian Fleming's James Bond would have it. Uh, Lacare always said it's too, it's too flashy, it's too sexy. Most spying is boring and plotting and done by very broken people. But I'm so glad that you are watching Tinker Tailor now. It, it's such a great story. And tell tell me about your thoughts on the first episode so far. Well, it's interesting how you, how you describe that because it does feel sort of like it's injecting you into that experience of the plotting effort of spying. Um, it, it I know you had mentioned this to me before I watched it, but it is a bit of a less than traditional approach to storytelling. Uh, I found myself a little lost actually uh, for the first part of the episode where, you know, it cuts between different characters and you really don't know anything about them. So uh, I think one thing I, I found myself reaching for, which I, I assume will develop as I go through the series is who should I really appreciate in it? Um, because it felt like, you know, I started to get to know uh, what was the one gentleman that, that's killed in Czechoslovakia well, the the interesting question is, was he killed? I wondered that, because it doesn't actually let you conclusively see that, does it? I, I'll ruin this bit for you. He was not killed. I, I had a, a sneaking suspicion on that. Okay, so um, in any case, I, I kind of was starting to follow him, and then it felt like, oh, he's snuffed out, so uh, where to go from there? So I, I was really curious. It felt like they were finally going to kind of piece things together for me a little bit, and then it cut to the credits. Um, so Yeah, let me help you out a little bit there. You've got Jim Frito was the spy that went to Czechoslovakia because 
Remember the boss man control sent Jim there to allegedly or purportedly seek the name of the person who is the mole inside the circus. The circus being the British intelligence service. That's what they call themselves. Um, so, so Jim goes to Czechoslovakia, but it doesn't quite work out, does it? No, he gave it a good shot, but then he got shot. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, Jim had an unfortunate end there. And the reason that you're seeing Smiley is George wants to know what happened to Jim. And, and the minister, the, the watchdog of the intelligence affairs is Sir Oliver Lakin. So Oliver Lakin calls Smiley in and says, we need your help. And Smiley's trying to get away. He's retired. He got thrown out when the bad thing happened to Jim in Czechoslovakia. So he doesn't want to be involved. He wants to put it behind him. And he's got his young, he's got his young friend, Peter Gwillem is looking for him in the middle of the episode. And he knows that Gwillem's looking for him. Did you notice that? Yes, yeah. So so, so George George is in the bookstore, and he has that funny line where he says to the bookkeeper, Barabbas was a bookseller, and it, and it cracks me up every single time. So, but, but he turns, and he looks, and he sees Gwillem in the street. That's Peter Gwillem. And he's like, I'm going the other way. Because I know what Gwilym is there for. I already know. And he tries to get away. He tries to get away, and then he runs into Roddy Martindale, right? You know? And 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 Roddy's this big gossip, right? That that part was hilarious. Because Roddy wants to know everything about everyone, and he thinks he knows, because he was an old spy before, a lower-ranking spy. And George just puts up with it, and he's so annoying. Roddy's so annoying, and he's just trying to get gossip, and he tries to get under George's skin, and he knows that's what he's doing. Finally, George walks away and gets away from Roddy, and and he's so mad, and he uses a profanity for, like, the only time in the entire miniseries because Roddy made him so mad. And then he comes back to the house, right, and Gwillem's already there. And then they go to Lacon. And so when you end the first episode there, they're at Lacon's house. And what do they, well, we'll wrap it up here, but what do they find out when they get to Lacon's house? We have a uh, spy that says his life has been changed by what he saw. Yep. And that's, and that's Ricky Tar. So Ricky Tar has a story. And the story is, guess what, boys? There's a mole. In the circus, which that's what Control thought at the beginning. And then the, the shooting of Jim messed up the investi- messed up Control's investigation of the mole because he got fired. He got sick and then died. And then George got fired. It's sort of funny that the story revolves around a mole, given that you said it's a, a response to Ian Fleming. I just actually finished a, a few weeks ago reading Casino Royale. I'd never actually read the novel. And it's, it's interesting when you think about if the two are juxtaposed that the first Bond novel revolves around a mole too in the character of Vesper. Uh, hopefully I'm not spoiling that for anybody. But 
It's kind of interesting. Oh yeah, I've seen the film. Yeah, uh, very different kind of storyline though. Right, and, and and again, you know, the people were aware of this, but Tinker Taylor is basically a recounting of the Philby story, the Kim Philby story. Well, we will have to pick back up on there, and I will let you know my progress as I, I go through the series. I, I should mention for anyone that would like, because Jason told me this, and then in my thick head it didn't stick, if you go and try to watch the series, the place you need to go is where, Jason? YouTube. Go to YouTube. It's not on any of the streaming services, but it is on YouTube, so go and check it out. There's a channel called Audience Hoop, and they have Tinker Taylor and also the follow-up miniseries Smiley's People in its fullness, both of them. I hear theme music. Must be time for our next topic. It is indeed. And that's uh, 52 verses, 52 weeks, 52 books, right, Tim? It is indeed. So... If you aren't familiar with what 525252 is, it's a project that we started this year at my church where every Sunday night we always have a little short devotional. I, I share some of them. Our worship leader, Melanie Haynes, has shared a number of them. And Jim Crenning, who's in our men's Bible study, also has, has shared them. But what we've been doing is going through 52 books of the Bible, not, not the entire Bible, but going one book per week to get a verse out of it to focus on, and then not going back to that book in this devotional series for the rest of the year. And so really, I'm not planning to talk too much about the series itself, although I'd love for people to check it out. It's up every Sunday night at littlehills.church. But the the thing that's really been striking to me, one of the interesting disciplines of this has been this commitment. We're going to cover 52 different books during the course of this year, because we all have our canon within the canon, as one of my professors like to call it, where there's certain books of the Bible each of us are prone to turning to. When you say, we're going to go through most of the Bible in a year, and you need to think, as you're planning a series like this, because there are certain times of the year, for example, we get to Christmas, we want to go to the Gospels and, and hear the Christmas story. So, as I've been planning it out and working with the others who are contributing and, and thinking about what books we're going to cover, I've had to think, well, what do I want to cover this week if I know I don't want to touch all my normal go-to books because they may need to apply later in the year or some tragedy happens in the nation and I want a place that I know is going to be comforting or, or what have you. So I've been trying to resist just going to my safety blanket books, as it were. And so spending a lot of this time in the Minor Prophets and it's been so encouraging. I, I know the minor prophets have lots of great assurance from God's word. I believe what we say from Second Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I believe that, and yet functionally, so often I ignore the minor prophets. And so I've really enjoyed this as sort of a discipline to to force me to engage more with these books of the Bible that. I often only give lip service to. Since I'm allegedly a theologian, Tim, I can tell you that outside of the Psalms and outside of the book of Isaiah, the books that the New Testament authors quoted from the most were the minor prophets. So I am so encouraged that you find so much profit, pardon the pun. Oh, that's good. Out of the minor prophets. <laughs> because... Uh, the, the I mean, basically, the setup 
for our Lord's coming, his first coming, his first advent, is what was written in the Minor Prophets, as well as Isaiah and the Psalms, of course. But that that formed the rich soil from which our New Testament authors saw themselves in their place in God's story as it was unfolding. So I think it's really cool to, to look at those smaller books, and I think we should let people know they're not called minor because they're minor in importance. They're called minor prophets because they're smaller in size. And then you have the major prophets being Isaiah and Ezekiel, um, Jeremiah, I'm forgetting one somewhere. Daniel. Daniel, thank you. And just to know that all of this together formed formed that soil from which the apostles and our Lord understood themselves as the people of God, just it helps us to draw connections in the New Testament that we need really need to draw. You know, you can turn to any page in God's Word and find Christ there. And and that's so encouraging and so wonderful to know that. You have to be careful when you do that, when you draw those connections, but they are there. And knowing that God is the author of all Scripture, He knows how to cross-reference better than anybody. I know that in the Faith Tree Men's Bible Study, I'm the the chief cross-referencer, and it's really obnoxious, but the best cross-referencer in all the universe is God himself and God, the Holy spirit, the author of scripture. So wonderful to know that God's word goes together and that it points all in the same direction towards our Lord and towards the final summing up of everything in Christ, the judgment and the reconciliation of all things in Christ. Just so encouraging to know that Christ is waiting for us on every page of God's Word. Absolutely. I know you agree with that, Tim. Yeah, I, I approve this message, uh, except for one point. You're not obnoxious, and I think that's here, – here's an interesting thing if you think about it. If, if it's good enough for Jesus to go and cross-reference the Old Testament, if it's good enough for the apostles to go into the Minor Prophets, why don't we do it more? It's funny how we as Christians look at the New Testament – and we dwell on it, and of course we should. It's so rich with encouragement and God's grace. But if we look at it and we look at the authors of it and what they do, why don't we do the same thing? It's kind of convicting in that regard. Uh, I want to I want to say a little something side-related, not necessarily on the track, but not totally off it. I know that I know that a lot of people are using the ESV. I know we have a lot of listeners that use the KJV. I know that I use the RSV Bible, but I want the listeners to know if you still have an NIV, one of the wonderful things about the NIV is that the cross-references are incredible and specifically incredible with direct quotations from the Old Testament. And I love that. So I don't have to go, I don't have to go looking too hard. Where is that? I want to know where in the Old Testament that that's quoted from. What is, what is Mark quoting? What is Luke quoting? What is John quoting? What is Matthew quoting? Uh, and the NIV is really helpful with that. So don't throw away your NIV. Absolutely not. Keep, keep your different Bible translations. One of the things that we find helpful in Bible studies is those points where they differ, and it kind of draws a point 
it's, it's very rare that it's a huge deal, but sometimes you'll see where the different translators have wrestled and come up with a different translation. It, it draws our attention to those places. Sort of like a, a series like this has drawn my attention more to the Minor Prophets. Uh, usually, usually my encounters with the Minor Prophets have been through, say, a Bible reading plan where I'm going to read through the Bible in a year or something along those lines. And so you, you get to them and you read them. But actually going in intentionally and saying, okay, what I'm going to be wrestling with right now to figure out how I'm going to share something of encouragement from God's word is this minor prophet has been really helpful. And one other thing, and I think we could all do this simply in our our personal Bible devotional time as well, is say, I'm going to go in and ask, what's a verse I can pull out of this book and, and, and really carry with me? And as I do that, can I pick one out that isn't the verse that everyone knows from that book? So for example, a couple weeks ago, and 52 verses, we went to the prophet Malachi. And if you've hung around the church for some time, you know that probably the only time it feels like that Malachi comes up is there'll be the once a year sermon on tithing. And inevitably the pastor will quote from Malachi. And one thing I wanted to do when we went to Malachi was say, that wasn't all that the prophet had to say. And so when I picked out the verse that week for 52 verses, I wanted to make sure not to pick the one that always gets cited. And so we went to chapter one, verse 13 instead, and talked about God's call to come to him with enthusiasm and to give him our best in what we do. And it was an incredibly encouraging thing, an incredibly convicting verse for me to go to, to think about what areas do I kind of coast with God and I'm not really devoting what's best to him. And it was a good challenge and a helpful one. And one that I really wrestled with because I said, I'm not going to just go with the cliche. I'm going to really wrestle with this book and get to know something new about it. And and we can all do that. You don't have to wait until you run into a devotional series that does it. Go open a book of the Bible that you don't feel like you really have a good grasp on or you haven't looked at for a while and say, I want to learn something new from this book because all scripture is God-breathed. God breathed, breathed his life into this book of the Bible and there are things that the Holy Spirit can show me in this book. And and what what's funny about that is my my verse from Malachi is just a couple of verses prior to yours in verse eleven, from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure offering is made to your name. Uh, and and so and, and near there it's about the corruption of the priesthood back in the time. Uh, so there's a lot of rich stuff. But even in churches that use set readings like a lectionary, you can fall into, well, we always hear these verses at this time, and and it always comes around, and it's generally the same verses, and we don't read the rest of the book. And and like you said, all of God's Word is is for us. Uh, So we need to to read it all. And, And, you know, Jerome said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Amen. So let's... Let's not be ignorant of Scripture. Let's read it. Let's read it for all it's worth. Let's try to know it as best we can according to our ability and stuff like that. Um, and let's be be with familiar with all of its parts as best we can because that's what Christians are supposed to do. It brings honor to Christ when we know all of the Word from the beginning to the end. Amen.
Heavens to Bet- Betsy, I see our, our, I hear our theme music again. Yes, yeah, we, we have some music, and it reminds us that it's time for our second sponsor of the show tonight, which is Open for Business at OFB.biz. Incidentally, Jason, did you realize we, we talked earlier about our first sponsor, Faith Tree, and that Faith Tree is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, but did you realize Open for Business is going to be celebrating the same anniversary in October? Is it 20 years? Seriously? 20 years that Open for Business has been online. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with the story of Open for Business, it started as purely a technical online magazine talking about migration of, of computers to open source. And it just sort of expanded as we got the different wonderful writers that have contributed to it over the years. Where now it's the journal of the business of technology, life, and culture. And there's all kinds of wonderful things on there. Jason, my fearless co-host, has great insights into so many things. He's been teaching me all kinds of great things about the wider world of sports most recently. And of course, he covers music as well and politics. And Dennis Powell, who we're going to talk about in just a moment, covers a wide range of things as well. I love to contribute. I I hope if you aren't already a reader of Open for Business that you will go to ofb.biz check it out every week. We have new content throughout the week. And I really think it's a special place. I, I love open for business and I would love to share it with you. I love cranking out random blather for you most weeks, Tim for open for business. So thank you. And and without open for business, there is no zippy, the wonder snail. So that's where we are. Yes. It's also the home of zippy and any place that's a home for zippy is a home for you. That is right. So let's talk about Dennis Powell and his piece that he he wrote this week. Yeah, it's uh, one of his sort of moment in life type pieces. I love Dennis, a great storyteller. And he goes back to his his years growing up and the way that his community functioned. I thought it was a great glimpse into something that we probably all would yearn for a little bit more. I think, and, and yes. And, and from, as an intellectual matter, I stumble over my words, but as an intellectual matter, what he's talking about is an idea of agrarianism where we grow the food that we eat. We live on the land. We share as neighbors you know, he mentions in the piece that you can't scale up the things that they did. You know, they traded all sorts of food and things as neighbors. And part of the problem is that there's benefits too, but we've scaled up so much. We've scaled up agriculture. We've scaled up this. We've scaled up that. We're losing that connection to the land and to yes. each other. And so uh, Dennis is pointing out something that, a lot of thinkers over the decades and centuries since industrialization have begun to point out. And we can do many things to recover that spirit of localism that has been lost a little bit. And hopefully we can recover some of that that small feel, that neighborly feel. You know, and this is related semi-related but not entirely related a lot of people are pointing out that cities are made for cars and not people you know there's other people pointing that out and that is you know that's contrary to localism because if it's not walkable then it's not neighborly and so with food with 
travel with businesses uh, when it's made for machines and not for people, we're going to lose part of those things that Dennis was talking about. Yeah. Things that we ought to keep. Yeah, I, I, I read it, and he's describing a, a, a different kind of world that we really have sort of given up of, of a time when when his family would raise certain crops and, and raise certain animals and, and share them with their neighbors and, and their neighbors would share things uh, with them. And I think about, I mean, most of us would say that if we could have some freshly picked produce or we can have what we had at the grocery store, we'd rather have the freshly picked. We'd rather have the freshly harvested bounty of the land. It tastes better. It tastes fresher. And there's something significant and enjoyable in the process of raising it. I'm raising various peppers at the moment. That's become something I've appreciated over the last few years. And it just tastes better when it's yours. And I don't think that's all in in our heads. I think oftentimes it is better. But then the idea that you take that a step further, and, and as Dennis mentioned, it doesn't really cost much in the way of extra money to to raise a, a little bit more and be able to share it with others. And what a joy when you can share produce with others. And and yet, because our society is so transient, we, we often miss out on that now. I, I was struck a few years ago, someone said to me, you need to just go and, and move someplace else. You just have to live somewhere else. And this is someone who had hopped around to, to different states and lived there. I'm a lifelong St. Louisan. And part of what really struck me is that for the vast majority of human history, the, the goal would have been to to enjoy the land that, that God has given you, to enjoy the relationships that God has given you. And somewhere in our, our twisted sense of culture, we've instead said, it's better if you don't enjoy those things. If you constantly are forming new relationships because you've moved out of reach of, the, of your network. And it's better if you don't know the place that you're in. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with people who have felt led to move. And sometimes there's really good reasons to do it. But part of what made what Dennis described possible was the long-term lasting network of neighbors that knew each other and had an interest in seeing each other thrive. And we lose that when everybody is constantly moving. Most of my neighbors, I don't know because they change out so quickly. And what a shame that is. That transience is contrary to localism, to what we might call solidarity, and to that connection that we can have with one another and should have. And I don't think, I think to your point, I don't think it's just nostalgia. What it is, is that we have a yearning to know that we are members of one another, as the scripture says. Yes. And then we have, we have, in many ways, an economic system and a, a society that is built around the idea that we are not members of one another. So we have this yearning deep in our hearts because God put it there to be members of one another. And then we wonder why we can't achieve it in the terms, some of the terms that we're currently living. We're too busy. We travel too far. We spend too far, too much time away from our family and we feel that we have to. And then we get a message from the wider society that says we're bad citizens if we move to reject this or if we can't live up to it. And the thing is, maybe we weren't supposed to live up to it. 
Um, and that might be a topic for another episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail, but that's worth thinking about. Who who are we and what are we supposed to be and what does it look like when people are flourishing together? You know, tonight at the Faith Tree Men's Bible Study, we're looking at Acts chapter 2 and what a wonderful picture of the church and how they shared everything together and they had everything in common. And they sold all their goods and gave it to people as they had need. That's a neighborhood, friends. Even though the church, you know, one outpost of the church might have been very big. You know, say the church in Rome or the church in Ephesus or Corinth. But if it's the church and if it's built by God, it's just neighbors being neighbors. Yeah, how can we be good neighbors? I, I feel like Mr. Rogers is sitting over my shoulder at the moment, but how can we seriously be good neighbors? And you look at the scriptures, and we really should come back to this, because there, it seems as though if we just pay attention to what God's Word says, the expectation is we actually live as neighbors closely knit together. And we really probably should spend more time as Christians thinking about how, as you said, is our culture wired in a different way than what God intended. And in our own lives, we don't necessarily have the power to change everything in our society, but we can certainly think about what is it that I'm just sort of blindly going along with that I don't have to, that I can enjoy a little bit more of this. And then it it ends up being, what do you know, we also flourish more through it. Dennis wrote that piece as a follow-up to his piece the week before on inflation and the rising cost of, of groceries. And you think about well, wait a second. If we cared for each other more and did share, you know, if I have too many peppers, I share it with my neighbor. If, or if he has too many tomatoes, he shares some with me or, or that sort of thing. It wouldn't eliminate that problem uh, of rising prices and trying to afford things, but it certainly does change it. It's just actually recognizing what God intended as we love our neighbors. And so we really should come back. We're out of time now, but we should come back and talk about that more in a future episode. Yeah, I agree. And it was John Christensen who said, if you have more than you need, the poor man, it belongs to him and not to you. We can we can end right there. That sounds like a good place to end. And another thing that you need to make sure you share is you need to share a space in your podcasting app with Zippy by subscribing to Zippy the Wonder Snail in your podcasting app. Because while we are coming to the end of yet another episode, there is much more to come on Zippy the Wonder Snail, and we don't want to have you miss a part of it. We want to share it with you. So please subscribe if it's Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you use, you'll find Zippy there and you should subscribe. And then as soon as the latest episode comes in, we can share that bounty, hopefully it's a bounty, with you. So please uh, do that. Tim, you're good at commercials, and I'm good at ranting, so hopefully it pleases someone in the audience. Sometimes I think my commercials are ranting, but hey, uh, in any case, we are so glad that you're here and that you are sharing in this with us, because we have an awful lot of fun putting this together, and we have a lot of fun sharing it with you. We are two Christian guys thinking about news culture and the things that matter to you. You can visit us anytime at zippythewondersnail.com. We will see you again 